Please take your Bibles and turn back to the first portion of Scripture that we read together, which is in the prophecy of Isaiah. And we come in our series of sermons through this book to chapter 19. And so we'll be considering together Isaiah chapter 19. We've read the chapter, but it opens with these words, the burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Of all the ancient civilizations, Egypt must be one of the longest continuing nations that we can point to in our own uh, day and age. You think by way of contrast to Babylon, where's Babylon, you know, or the Medes or even the Roman Empire and so on. Something of Egypt that still endures uh, to the present day. And at the time of Isaiah and prior, it was a place that was highly advanced. So children, you think in the 20th century, it was it became fashionable for people to build uh, skyscrapers. And so, you know, someone would build a skyscraper and then you would wait. And now into the 21st century, this continues. You know, lo and behold, someone else builds another skyscraper and it's even taller than the previous one. And you wait a little longer and maybe some years pass and another place in the world, another skyscraper pops up and it's even taller than the one before. And at any given period, you might think, okay, one individual building is, you know, the tallest building in the world for, you know, a couple decades or, or more, perhaps, perhaps less. And that's the way things go. Think of Egypt. It had the world's tallest skyscraper for over 3,000 years. Think of that. Over 3,000 years, the tallest skyscraper in the world, the pyramids right outside of now modern-day Cairo. And it's very interesting to think about it. If you were to go to, to Cairo and stand outside Cairo at the pyramids, you have the Sphinx there in front of one of the, the pyramids, and you're standing there looking at these, uh, these structures, and you think to yourself, Joseph stood here. Joseph saw these same skyscrapers. You know, Moses saw them for sure. Probably Abraham even saw the same pyramids that you would look at if you were standing there today. Right? The engineering is incredible. I mean, modern engineers are, are, are baffled by so much of it. Even the, the meticulous precision down to, I'm told, maybe centimeters in the construction of it and so on. Truly staggering. So it's an advanced, highly advanced um, civilization. We could say much more about that. You can read about it uh, on, on your own. But more importantly, Egypt features very prominently in redemptive history and in the Bible, which is most important of all. And you think, of course it does, because of the Exodus, one of the most notable events in all of Old Testament history, and that's true. But it is, it is significant beyond the Exodus throughout uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures. It has a role that it is playing. And indeed, if you were to ask uh, a Jew in the days of our Lord, 
you know, who the great enemies are. Uh, they would look back on the history of uh, the Israelite people and say there are two. Right, children, you should know this when you're reading your Old Testaments. Egypt and Babylon. Right? These are the two biggies in the Jewish mind because of their captivity over that extended period in, in, in Egypt and then later on, uh, briefer, 70-year captivity uh, among the Babylonians. Well, here we come in our, prof, in our study of the prophecy of Isaiah to chapter 19, and we've heard him addressing one country after another, and we come this afternoon to God's word to Egypt, this country that we've been highlighting. And this should have more than a little personal interest to us, because unlike some of the other countries that we've heard about in previous chapters, this one uh, we have some sense of attachment to. Right? We have, as a congregation, invested uh, in the labor of the gospel in this country, and there are those, our brethren, whom we hold very near and dear, who live there and who continue to, to hold forth the gospel and reform faith. And so because of that attachment, we, we come to chapters like this with a, a keen interest. What's, what's the Lord going to say about this place? What's, what's he going to say about Egypt? Well, let's consider what God indeed does say to them and what he says about them. We're going to note three things. First of all, the punishment of sin. So like many of the other sections, it opens on this note of the punishment of sin, really verses 1 to 10, uh, we see the Lord bringing judgment. We're told uh, in verse 1 that the Lord comes. He's coming to Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. And this, my friends, is what makes all the difference the Lord coming to a place, the Lord coming to a people. This is what transforms and changes everything. It's described metaphorically in terms of him coming, as it were, on the wings of a storm. You know, you think of before modern technology, you live on the coast of South Carolina, and we get to hurricane season, they wouldn't have all of the indicators well ahead of time of what was coming and yet it would come swiftly. Hurricanes would come onto our coast, you know, with great rapidity and speed and sweep over with destructive force and so on. That's the picture that's being put uh, before us here, the Lord coming, not graciously in this instance, but in the first instance with, with judgment, the manifestation of his own presence. You, you sing about this in Psalm 68 when it says, sing unto God, sing praises to his name, Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. You have the same thing in Psalm 104 and in other places, right? This is the manifestation of God's presence, the Lord coming to Egypt. Now, it's not the first time they've seen the Lord come before. He came in the servant of his prophet Moses, who stood before, you know, the great power of Pharaoh and said, Thus saith Jehovah, let my people go. Egypt saw the Lord come at the Red Sea, didn't he? He came with all of their invincible military might, which dominated the world at the time, and literally washed it away. So that horse and rider drowned in the sea. That was the Lord coming. And the manifestation of his presence, the cloud, the pillar, 
coming to show forth his own strength. You see him on the other side of, of, of the Red Sea, the Lord coming to Sinai. And the whole mountain is ablaze with fire and there's darkness and thundering and rumblings of the ground and smoke that's rising off. God has come. The Lord has come and manifest his presence. We can go on and on, right? Many instances throughout the scriptures, but chiefly and most gloriously, the coming of God in the person of his son. In the incarnation, Christ coming and dwelling among us, Emmanuel, God with us. Here is Christ in the midst of, of this world. And you think of Pentecost with God coming and the sending of the third person of the Trinity and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who comes with power and all sorts of signs and wonders that come with that. And it makes us think, doesn't it, not just of the past, but there's still another coming. The Lord will be coming ultimately and finally at his, second, at, his, at his return, his second coming, when the Lord Jesus Christ will come in the clouds of heaven with the shadow of the archangel and the trumpet and every grave that has ever been known throughout the history of the world will be opened to give up its dead. And men will be resurrected, the just and the unjust, and arraigned before the throne of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's important. You come to verse 1. It should grab a hold of us. Here is the Lord, and he is coming to Egypt, coming into Egypt. And you'll notice the, 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 the response, right? There's Egypt with all of its pride, and you can appreciate it. I mean, at this point, they have, you know, centuries of accomplishment. I mean, not just the pyramids as trophies to their achievement, but so much more in terms of advance, all of their pride and rebellion, the Lord brings at his coming utter humiliation, right? There's the downfall that comes. We're told that their idols, which they served and loved and worshiped and so on, they're shaking, they're moving at his, his presence. Here is the immovable God. Here is Jehovah of hosts, whom no one can cause to shudder, whom no one can topple. He's the immovable God. When he comes, all of the false gods and all of the idols are toppled. They're all shaking. The heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it, right? That lion heart, that, that strength of, of, of power and so on is going to melt like wax. It will drain right out of the bottom of their feet in the face of Jehovah. This is the Lord coming to punish their sins, he brings confusion in verse 2, Egyptians against Egyptians, city fighting against city, kingdom against ki kingdom, and so on. The Lord uses them against themselves. He sets them against themselves so that they do the work that he has set about, right? They're, they're actually fighting and killing each other. There's, there's something very self-defeating that's being described in the Lord's judgment here. The Lord is, has done it before. We've seen him do it as well in, in terms of the Ammonites and other instances where Israel went out to war and this is what took place. But it's the nature of sin. Sin itself is self-defeating. Uh, I think it was Thomas Manton, the Puritan, who said that sin is always the worst guest to have. Sin is always the worst guest because it always sets the lodgings on fire. 
And this is what we see happening with Egypt, right? They're, they're being set ablaze, if you will. In verse 3, the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. And all of the sense of, of uh, rigor and uh, strength and so on, their counsel uh, will fail. I will destroy the counsel there, thereof. And so here there's a complete collapse, complete failure of, of everything. They're, 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 they're losing everything, and they have a complete inability to, to hold things together. And so they do what they do, right? The, the Egyptians were full-fledged idolaters, and they had all sorts of wickedness in terms of demonic activity. They're running to their idols, their charmers. They're going to those who have demons who could, could, could give them help. They go to their wizards, all this sort of thing. They're running to this, and it's all collapsing under them. It's all failing. It's of no use to them whatsoever. Indeed, the Lord says, you've been a tyrant. You have specialized in despotism since before the days of Moses. And now you as a tyrant will be tyrannized. The sins which you have perpetrated against others will be visited upon your own head. And so he says in verse 4, he's going to give them over to a cruel lord, a fierce king, Indeed, this is, this is fulfilled uh, initially in, in um, Assyria, who's coming, right? So Assyria in 670 B.C. comes in and conquers Egypt and subjects them to their own whim and will, their own wishes. And so they're dominated. This is what happens, right? This is what always happens. This is the pattern we learn from the Scriptures, Right, the way in which God works in his works of providence, we learn to anticipate it. Tyrants are tyrannized. Right? The sins perpetrated end up coming back to roost upon those who have perpetrated them. And so it's no different here than it is anywhere else. You come to verses 5 to 10, and this punishment for sin is described in terms of the waters failing. The waters shall fail from the sea and the river, shall be wasted and dried up, and then you have a description of the waters drying up, and you have a description of the implications, right, vegetation and, and other commerce that would be affected by it and so on. This is striking Egypt at the core, because one of the things that made Egypt great was its water, right? It has the Nile, which to this day is world-renowned, and all the tributaries that are associated with the Nile, and they were able in terms of their technological advance to harness those waters so that Egypt was the breadbasket in many ways of that whole part of the world. And to this day, still a great producer in terms of, of agricult agricultural products uh, throughout the, the Middle East. And so their water is absolutely, this is gold for them. This is liquid gold. This is what made them rich and powerful and gave them resources and so on. And he says, your waters, the thing you have prized above everything else, the thing that you have had that others did not have, this, this source of pride and all that comes with it, your waters shall fail. You know, we, we think of that and it doesn't hit us quite the same way, but you put yourself in the Egyptian place and it's a whole nother matter. This is, this is, comprehensive economic collapse. This is the failure of the economy. This, my friends, is starvation. 
This is a world power reduced to absolute abject poverty. That's what's being described. The Lord is dropping the hammer. God is coming, manifesting his presence in terms of judgment upon these people. What we learn, among other things, from this is that when God comes to judge, everything crumbles. When God comes with temporal judgments in time and in history upon individuals, households, countries, nations, and so on, it results in disintegration. When the Lord determines to bring judgment, everything crumbles. The places and the things that have been idolized, that have been the source of pride, the things that have been their strengths and the things that have contributed to their greatness, those very things vanish. They're gone. The Lord wipes them away like you would wipe chalk off of a chalkboard. When God judges, everything crumbles. This should teach us to fear the Lord. This should teach us how to read history. It should give us discernment in understanding the present hour. But it should not leave us just there. It should bring us there. But it should also take us and our thoughts and hearts to the final judgment. Because all of the temporal judgments in this world, when God comes and takes great nations and kicks them over, tosses them to the curb, throws them in the dumpster, buries them in the dirt, which he's done over and over and over. It is a, it is a little foretaste, right? It's, as I say, a shot across the bow. It's a sight, an insight into something far, far, far greater that is, that is yet coming. Because all of the temporal judgments are going to culminate ultimately in the last judgment. And he will come, you know, use the language of Matthew 26, verse 64. Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And this is a reference, of course, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who ascends to the right hand of of heaven and is given all power and authority in order that in due course he may come as the judge of, of all the earth. And so the depictions that are given to us in, uh, of, of the, the judgment to come are reminiscent of what we read here in Isaiah and in, in other prophets and so on. What now looks untoppable, what men who, who look invincible in their power, their limitless wealth, their influence, their popularity, the, 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 the you know, even war, war machinery of nations and so on that seems so unstoppable are reduced to rubble. And on the last day, there is no one, right? The Lord will send his angels to assemble, and there's no one that is going to be able to outrun it. No one is going to be able to resist or fight. No one is going to be able to buy their way out or, or plead their way out or finagle their way out. 
They're all going to be, you and I and everyone else are going to be assembled before the, the, the judgment and, and bar of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he will render judgment. And the verdict that is issued cannot be appealed and will never be repealed. It stands. And those who are sent off into everlasting destruction will be bound by Invince overwhelmingly powerful angels and cast with the devil and his, his host into the lake of fire where there will be torment forever and ever where the worm will not die but continually gnaw. This is the great judgment that is yet to come. And so it should teach us, shouldn't it, to sit up, to pay attention, to bow before the Lord, to hear his word, and to heed that word in faith and repentance. So we have the punishment of sin. Secondly, and much briefer, we have the exposure of need. So secondly, the exposure of need, verses 11 to 17. So the Lord turns his attention to the princes. Zoan is a capital city. Sometimes Egypt as a whole goes by the name Zoan. We sing it in our Psalter as well. It's referring to, to Egypt. These princes of Egypt, or Zon, Zoan, are, are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh has become brutish. So the Lord turns his attention to the upper brass, to the leaders. And he says they're fools. But you would be hard-pressed to get any of Pharaoh's house or any of the citizenry or even any of those within foreign countries around them to ever think of these princes as fools. Right? They considered themselves eminently wise men. Right? They were men of remarkable ability, and they had resources of, of people with remarkable intelligence around them. Hence, we have not only the political accomplishments, but scientific accomplishments and all sorts of other things that are, are seen there in, in, various, in various ways. They think they're brilliant. But the Lord thinks they're fools. The Lord says they're fools because they are fools. And all of the protests to the contrary avail nothing whatsoever despite all of their prestige and power and accomplishment, they're fools. Now, this is as relevant as it has ever been, along with the rest of this, this, this chapter, isn't it? Because you, you, you can, if you have, I like to say, half a mind to listen to the political discourse in our own day, our country or others, you think, this, this really is, this is a circus. Fools, absolute folly. Political discourse is insanity. It's hard to believe. And yet no one would consider themselves such who hold positions of power, nor would most among the people consider them fools. After all, in, in the days of Egypt and in modern days, people can say, you know, how did we get to where we are? How did we get here? if we're not so phenomenally wonderful and, and great. And the Lord says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
He pronounces vanity over it. He says this is foolish. And it becomes evident. They have no sense of direction. They're saying, look, you know, I'm the son of a wise, the son of ancient kings, and so on. And the Lord says, where? Where are thy wise men? Let them tell thee now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts hath purposed upon Egypt. If they're so wise, tell us what the living and true God has in store for Egypt. What's the Lord doing now? What's the Lord going to do with, with Egypt? And of course, not one of them can answer. Their forecast would be quite different than the prophetic forecast given to us in this passage. And it's the same kind of thing that you get when Paul's writing uh, to the, the Corinthians. And he's saying, look, the wisdom of this world, uh, they have all this so-called wisdom. And he says, the wisdom of this world, what is it? It's foolishness. You know, we're coming with the gospel with, with true wisdom, the wisdom of God. Where, where are your scribes? Where are your philosophers? Where are all your bright, brilliant people? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Paul's saying the same thing so many centuries later that God was saying through Isaiah at this very moment. There's no sense of direction. They're, they're stumbling around over themselves and around themselves. He says, they're deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. They've, the Lord's mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, so that Egypt has been caused to err. They think they're on the right path. They think they have everything sorted. They think that the, all, their broadcast, all their forecasts are spot on and so on and so forth. And the Lord says, no, you're in utter confusion. And, the, and things are collapsing. And, and they will look anywhere and everywhere but to Jehovah. At the point of the, at this point in the chapter, they will not look anywhere in reference to, to Jehovah himself. And so it is with depraved, fallen, sinful men who are deluded and blind and ignorant and deaf to the truth. Look anywhere and everywhere but to Christ, the one who is the source of wisdom and knowledge, in whom are found the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the only wise God. This is the answer for Egypt. Egypt's answer is turn to Jehovah, bow before Jehovah, burn all of your idols and all of the other false religion, burn it to ash and throw it in that Nile of yours and repent and come before the Lord and pledge your allegiance to him and receive his word and follow him. This is the way to wisdom. This is the way to life and light, but they won't have it. They're made to err. And every work thereof, as a drunken man staggering in his vomit. Not how they would have seen themselves. But this is a reality check of how they truly are. Drunks staggering in their vomit. And so it is with Egypt and with nations whose God is not Jehovah and who wage war against him and refuse to bow in submission and faith and repentance, turn to him. And the result is terror. The result is that they are left terrified. They're described as hysterical women 
these invincible, strong, powerful, you know, individuals. A bunch of, a bunch of hysterical women running around. In that day, Egypt should be like unto women. And should be afraid in fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. Right now they're beginning to see their need. Now they're beginning to face reality. Now they're seeing what they couldn't see. It's Jehovah's hand that has risen against us. And that results in fear. They fear because of it. But the problem is that they didn't begin with the fear of God. This is the problem. There was the fear of the Lord was not before their eyes. And so they're, bought, they're brought to tremble in their boots. So that even Judah is a terror to Egypt, which would never have been the case at the time. Right? There's this fear because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. They're brought to see the hand of God. People speak about acts of God. A tree falls on the house, insurance claim, act of God, whatever. I assume they still do that. Here is the act of God, and men are being brought face to face with the fact that it's his hand, his counsel, that is determined against them. And so there's the exposure of need. But then I want to hasten on, thirdly, to the salvation. So saved by the Lord, salvation from the Lord. You get to the end of verse 17, and one thing's crystal clear, and that is salvation is not going to be found by themselves. Salvation is not going to be found from themselves. Right? So this is true. The Lord brings his word. He brings in his providence judgments upon nations, upon people, upon sinners. And, and, and in its wake is, is, is decimation. The Lord exposes need. We think of ourselves as good people, upright people. You know, we may not have this, that, or the other thing, but we're brighter than other people in one way or another. You know, we see things other people don't see. People tend to have this inflated view of themselves until the Lord comes, until the Lord manifests his presence, until the Lord brings his word, until the Lord drops his hammer. And then all of a sudden, that's gone. And sinners are brought face to face before the living and true God and realize you don't stand a chance. You, my friend, do not stand a chance. And the Lord brings us to the end of ourselves. He brings us to the bottom in order to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we are brought to see we've got nothing. We can do nothing. We can contribute nothing. We can do absolutely nothing in order to save ourselves from the most perilous dilemma of all, and that is to be found in the hands of the living God under his judgment because of our sin and rebellion. So they're not saved from anything in themselves, nor are you saved by anything in yourself. They're saved by the Lord, and that becomes abundantly clear. He's speaking into the future, and he's saying, in that day, and here from verse 18 to the end, we have a remarkable description of remarkable events that should dazzle and amaze us. They really should. We're speaking about Egypt, the arch enemy of the Old Testament people of God. Look at what the Lord will do. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan. 
I love this description. They're speaking the language of Canaan, right? What's the language of Canaan? Hebrew. But what, what's really being spoken of? It's, it's saying that they, they're speaking the language of God's people, spiritual conversation. It's the language of faith. It's the language that speaks God's words after him. Right? We're not just talking about languages, Spanish, French, English, Russian, so on and so forth. That's not the primary point, though the scriptures are given in Hebrew at that point. The language of Canaan. Here are people who are, who are coming to adopt the language because they're adopting the mind, the truth, the thinking of God's people. And so they speak the language of Canaan. Swear to the Lord of hosts. Right Here are people who, who, whose whole life for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries were swearing falsely, you know, curses in their mouths. And now all of that's being reversed. And now they're, they're coming with reverence to speak of Jehovah. They're coming to, to pay vows and to pledge themselves to the living and true God. They're coming to swear by him. And you see the description of allegiance, five cities in the land of Egypt. And this can be descriptive of initial remnant or it could be descriptive of a part for the whole, right? These cities in, in Egypt that are coming with allegiance to, to the Lord himself. You know, isn't this part of what it means to be converted? You come to speak the language of Canaan. You knew English, you knew how to speak. You could string syllables and words and sentences, paragraphs together, easy enough. You could hear a lot about the Bible. But when the Lord takes you and snatches you as a brand from the fire, when the Lord plucks you out of the miry pit of clay and puts your feet upon a rock, he also puts a new song in your mouth. And you begin to speak the language of Canaan. Here we have Egyptians speaking the language of God's people. Spiritual conversation. You think of verse 19, in that day there shall be an altar to Jehovah in the midst of the land of Egypt, in Egypt itself. Here you have an, an outpost from Israel. Here you have an outpost, if you will, from Zion, planted in the heart of the enemy territory of God's people. An altar, right? A pillar at the border thereof. Right? The altar is a, is, a, is a picture of worship, a place where, where they would worship the living and true God. It's more than that. It's also a symbol of sacrifice. It's an Old Testament picture for the cross, right? of, of atonement and of salvation and of all that comes with that. And through it, the worship that is brought before the Lord, which is worship in spirit and in truth. Here you have Worship taking place inside Egypt. Verse 20, the Lord comes and they shall cry unto the Lord because of their pressures and he shall send them a savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. I have a hard time believing that this is a reference to anyone else than the Lord Jesus Christ. Given everything that we've seen in Isaiah, Everything that's been told, chapter 9, chapter 11, first 10 verses, so on and so forth. All of the depictions of the, of the Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
They cry unto the Lord and he sends them the Savior, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is able to deliver them to the uttermost. He is the one that is the great one. Who's the deliverer? The Lord himself is the deliverer. They cry to the Lord and he sends them himself. But now he's not coming in the manifestation of justice and righteousness to punish and obliterate them. He is coming as a savior to deliver them and to redeem them. And so in verse 22, that's exactly what's depicted. Lord smites them and heals them. And they return. This is the language of repentance. To return to the Lord, to Jehovah. They're coming with repentance. And they're crying out and entreating him. And he will heal them. So they turn from their sin and idolatry and wickedness and waywardness and so on. They're turning to the Lord in repentance, crying out to him, and he grants their cry. Here we have the prayers of Egyptians being heard and answered. So the Lord is bringing spiritual healing to them. A repentant people. Verse 23. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria shall come into Egypt, to Egypt and Assyria, and Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. I mean, th this, this is crazy, right? This is, we, we heard last week, who, who are the two world powers right now? Egypt and Assyria. Assyria is growing in its power and, and influence and so on. Egypt has had a position of dominance, and now they're beginning to be concerned Assyria wants to sack Egypt. Indeed, they're going to. Egypt wants to defeat Assyria. You know, who's going to control uh, the region and so on? These are two arch enemies. And it's described metaphorically in terms of an interstate. It's described as a highway that runs between Assyria in the northeast of, of Israel to Egypt in the southwest of Israel, a highway. But notice the language shall serve. They shall serve together. Here, this becomes even more apparent in the verses that, that follow. These two enemies are not only united to Jehovah, they're united to, as a consequence to one another. There's a bridge that's built. There's a highway that's formed. And they're serving together. To serve includes, in the Old Testament, worship. Worshiping together, right? In other words, you have Egyptians and Assyrians who are fellow brothers and sisters under Christ. That's the kind of thing that's being depicted here. This is the path to peace, right? It's through the publication of the gospel of peace. It is through the reign of the Prince of Peace. And so the only peacekeeping forces that exist are gospel ministers who are sent as missionaries. If we could only get this through the thick heads of so many around us in our, own, in our own day and age, the only path to peace, all the New Testament make perfectly clear and, and plain, is through the publication of the gospel of peace. This is where it happens. Right? The gospel missionaries being sent as the, as God's peacekeeping forces. The gospel comes, the spirit accompanies it, men and women, boys and girls are converted. 
They're brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're brought to worship and serve him. Those whom they've been opposed receive the gospel as well. Now they're brothers. Now they're bound together in, in love as members of the same body before the, before the Lord. Staggering this. This is staggering to think about. Verse 24, in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria. Even a blessing in the midst of it. Here is Zion, which ends up being the glue for all. The advance of God's kingdom and Zion. These three brought together, all of them enemies of, of one another at one time or another. And Israel's now being added. This has to be descriptive of something after the New Testament. Because it's in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice upon the cross, his ascension, and so on, that as a consequence, as Paul says, the middle wall of partition is broken down. It's post-Pentecost that we see Jew and Gentile you know, being brought together in this, in this sort of way. We, we, we read about it, didn't we, in, in Ephesians 2. You can read about it in several places, but Ephesians 2 is where we read for our New Testament reading. Verse 14, He, that is Christ, for He is our peace, who hath made both one, Gentiles like Egyptians and Assyrians, and Jews like Israel, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and so on and so forth. Verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Here is the path, the blessing. We sang about it in Psalm 32, Psalm 65. Blessed is the man whom the Lord has chosen, whose iniquities, whose iniquity is pardoned, and so on. This is the blessing that comes through the publication of the gospel, and God is saying he is bestowing, pronouncing, commanding, issuing his pronouncement of blessing upon the likes of Egypt and Assyria along with Israel. Think of what this would mean in the mouth of a Jew in the days of Isaiah. For Isaiah himself to have said it. To say the words, Egypt, my people. There's no way you can appreciate how mind-blowing this would be. For God to say, Egypt, Wait, we're God's people. We're the sons of Abraham. We're, we're, the, we're the, the children of, of God. We are Zion. We are the chosen people, the people who are blessed and so on and so forth. And we are against all of them. And God is with us and against all of them. And here the Lord is saying, Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. Israel, mine inheritance. These being held together. Imagine that in the Jewish mind. And yet if they knew their scriptures as they ought, they would remember that from the beginning, God had told their father Abraham, 
Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed. Indeed, there was a seed that would come, going all the way back to Genesis 3, coming through Abraham's line and beyond David and so on. The seed, Christ himself would come as the Savior, as the Lord, as the King. He would come. And through his coming and through his work and through all that he would accomplish and his humiliation and exaltation, he would bring blessing to the nations, to all of the nations, so that he who is exalted above all and given all power and authority on heaven and earth has said, go disciple them. Go disciple those nations. Teach them absolutely everything I've commanded you. Baptize them in my triune name. Bring them in because they're the heritage of Christ. They're the promised possession of the Lord Jesus Christ so that heaven will be filled with every tribe and tongue and people and so on. In the wake of gospel blessing, this is the Lord coming with blessing to the likes of Egypt. When you think of the implications of this, you think of the fact that this is something which yet awaits this dear country of Egypt. Right, right now, the overwhelming majority of that country are under the crescent, under the boot of Islam. Even those who are called Christians, the largest majority of those consist of the Coptics who have no gospel. Yes, there is a bright, vibrant, and, and true witness of you know, gospel preaching churches there for which we rejoice and give glory and honor to the Lord. But you could not yet say of Jehovah, Egypt, my people. But this is a day, my friends, that is indeed coming. It is a day that is indeed coming and it is a cause for a Christian hope for Egypt. The means by which this comes is the gospel, not all the other finagling and political maneuvering and cultural triumphalism that people are about. The means will be through the preaching of the gospel alone. But you know, there are other means and those means include prayer. Why does the Lord give us only six petitions and one of the six is thy kingdom come? Why? Because prayer is seed, just like preaching is seed. Minister stands at the pulpit and he's scattering seed on the surface of men's souls. But we all do that. Prayer is seed as well in the sense of prayer. Prayer is seed. Thy kingdom come. When we're praying for the Lord to bring about the advance of the kingdom of grace and the destruction of the kingdom of Satan and the hastening of the kingdom of glory, the Lord is pleased to use that means. He brings the gospel forward. He advances his kingdom through the investment of prayer. And so this is an encouragement to us as well. We can pray according to the will of God, according to what his own prophetic word for Egypt and that the Lord would bring all that is described here in all of its fullness to pass in Egypt. We can pray it. 
and the Lord indeed will do it as he has promised to do it. We can pray that he would hasten the day when that would be true. And of course, we need to as well be heavily invested in terms of the, the gospel being proclaimed there and the Reformed faith being promoted throughout the length and breadth of that land, which is near and dear to every one of your hearts as it is, as it is to mine. And extrapolating from that, this applies across the board, doesn't it? The whole world. Egypt is the point of this chapter, but the principle applies to the world at large. The Lord would cause the gospel to flourish and the kingdom to come with power, that men and women, boys and girls, and nations too would be saved by Jehovah to his own glory. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we do pray Thy kingdom come. We pray, O Lord, hasten the fulfillment of thy holy word. Give, we ask, for the blessing and prosperity of the gospel in Egypt and far beyond. We ask for the discipling of the nations. The nations and heathen have been promised to Christ, thy Son, as his inheritance. O gracious Father, grant it. Bring these things to pass. O Lord, teach us to fear thy name, to see clearly trends and patterns and providence, to walk circumspectly before thee. We pray, O Lord, for the conversion of sinners here in our own midst and in our own community. And ask, O Lord, that thou wouldst be pleased to bring men to the end of themselves, to the bottom of themselves, to seeing that they cannot save themselves in order that they might be brought with repentance and faith and entreatings to Christ alone who can heal them. O Lord, hear our cries, we ask in Jesus' name.